So this morning, as we continue our sermons on the Apostles' Creed, we've been talking about Jesus' deity. Now today, we're going to talk about his humanity. The Creed says Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And interestingly enough, from there, it goes to suffered under Pontius Pilate. Pause there for a moment. Like we go from born of the Virgin Mary to suffered under Pontius Pilate. There's a lot of stuff in between there in the Gospels. Most of the Gospels, but the creed goes from womb to tomb, as someone has said. So today we need to reflect on the whole life, the human life of Jesus. What does it mean that Jesus actually lived on earth as a human being? Christians believe that Jesus is fully God and fully human. What does that mean to us? Well, the writer of Hebrews gives one answer when uh, the scripture says, Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. When I was in sixth grade, those words came home to me in a very dramatic way for the very first time. What does it mean that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. And I remember hearing somebody talk, I don't remember who, somebody saying that everything that we go through, Jesus went through. Well, let me tell you what I was going through in boarding school. Some of you have heard me say this. Uh, It was uh, not unusual for missionaries in those days, especially in Pakistan, to send their children off to boarding school for about six months out of the year. So that started at the time in first grade. We were in the States in first grade, but by second grade, all the way through sixth, I was away from my parents for six months out of the year and had a house parent, a boarding parent, to raise me. So all the things like laundry and errands and allowance and all of those kinds of things were done in the context of a boarding school. Well, big problem for little Bobby because I wet the bed. Actually, I wet the bed until I was 15 years old. We left Pakistan when I was 11, so it was just my sixth grade year. But if you can imagine your your second grade and people are going, okay, Bobby still wets the bed. But when you're in sixth grade, you're supposed to have outgrown that. And I still wet the bed every single night. And I remember being terrified that somebody in, so one of the boys in the sixth grade, they all obviously knew, would tell the girls in the sixth grade, Bobby still wets the bed. What compounded my uh, sense of uh, discomfort with that was Uncle Jim. Uncle Jim was my boarding master, and he was from England. He was a very strict disciplinarian, and he believed that you could... uh, you could basically correct little boys with a cane, a little a long uh, wooden cane, but very flexible. And he used it on a lot of boys, uh, but uh, mostly the boys who were most rebellious and disobedient, and I wasn't. And Uncle Jim never caned me for wetting the bed, but he did try to shame me uh, into not wetting the bed. So I remember one time when Uncle Jim said, okay, Bobby, you've got 15 minutes to get up, change your clothes, make your bed, get a bath, and be ready to go. And when I did it, he said, okay, you got 14 minutes the next day. And he got all the way down to five minutes because he felt like by shaming me or pressuring me, somehow it would help me not wet the bed. It did not work. But it was during that sixth grade year dealing with Uncle Jim and my peers and this terror that somebody would tell the girls that I remember wondering if Jesus went through everything that we went through, Does that mean that Jesus wet the bed? Hold on to that question. 
conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. What scripture would you choose if you were going to preach on that theme? The obvious choices are uh, texts in Matthew and Luke, where we have, of course, the, the birth narratives about Jesus. Now, we didn't go in that direction in part because the creed doesn't just leave us there. It takes us all the way through his humanity. It's more than just about his birth. It's often been noted that 25 of the 27 books in the New Testament do not mention how Jesus came into the world. That is, without a biological father. Uh, No contribution from Mary's husband, Joseph. For some, this means the doctrine of the virgin birth is unimportant, if not even suspect. Maybe Matthew and Luke just made it up because the Christian faith needed a story that was as good as the stories in the Assyrian legends or the Egyptian or Greek and Roman gods. Even Star Wars has a virgin birth story. So maybe the Christians just sort of inserted this to make the story more credible. The problem is that for many people, it actually makes it more incredible that this is added. And that's one of the evidences that it's true. My Sunday school class is currently studying the Apostles' Creed. We use a book called The Good News We Almost Forgot by Kevin DeYoung. And he has a chapter called vital virginity on this theme of the virgin birth. And he addresses some of these arguments, and he quotes J. Gresham Machen, there can be no doubt that at the close of the second century, so we're going back a long way, the virgin birth of Christ was regarded as an absolutely essential part of Christian belief by all parts of the Christian church in all parts of the known world. So comfortable or not, this doctrine is a part of the Christian faith. But one reason perhaps it is underplayed in the New Testament and maybe even in churches is not because it's untrue or unimportant, but because it is scandalous. It's what we might call an insider doctrine, right? If you you use this as your first uh, uh, conversation with an unbeliever and you go like, well, let me start at the very beginning. Jesus was born of a virgin. You might lose the person right away. So I don't believe... um, let me, let me say this carefully. I don't believe Jesus is the Son of God because he was virgin-born. I believe in the virgin birth because I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So for evidence that he's the Son of God, I don't look to the virgin birth. I look to his life and his death and the scriptures and his, especially his resurrection to his own testimony. But if Jesus is the incomparable one, Yahweh, in human form, then the virgin birth then becomes not only plausible but essential to the story. But I'm not going to spend all of my time here on the virgin birth today. I want to go in a different direction because what's important for this part of the creed, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, is that this is the way that we declare as Christians that Jesus shared our humanity. So you might be, uh, you might want to focus on the words like, you know, conceived by the Virgin Mary, or conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. But I don't want to go on to those two words. I want to go to the words conceived and born. And think about the fact that we're talking about the one who is Yahweh, is God, the eternal God. What we're saying is that God was once a zygote, and then a blastocyst, And then an embryo, and then a fetus who developed within the womb of the Virgin Mary. That God passed through a birth canal and had to be slapped on his bottom to take that first gasp of air and fill his lungs with breath. And that's only the beginning. God 
in human form, nursed and soiled his diaper. His brain was almost a blank slate at birth, but then averaged a million new neural connections every second for the first three years of his life as he developed into the brain that humans have. He learned to say Abba and Ama, but somebody had to teach him that. And I can imagine Joseph and Mary going like, I think he's going to say Abba first. No, he's going to say Ama first. The little guy skinned his knee and later hammered his thumb while learning the trade of, the contract of his contractor father. He sat in a synagogue to learn the law of God from others, like every other kid. He went to Jerusalem and impressed the leading scholars of his day with his questions and answers in a give and take. God hit puberty in the second decade of his life, and suddenly girls were more interesting and attractive to him. Likely as a teenager, he learned what grief and need are when his father died, and he, as a teenager, became the provider for his family. And it was tough, and he lived in poverty. Every indication of the Gospels is that Jesus was a very ordinary boy and young man, as ordinary as any other kid in Nazareth. Nobody in Nazareth would have said, Jesus is the most likely to be God. Like they never thought he was any different than anyone else. Jesus was a normal kid, a normal teenager, a normal young adult in Nazareth. And although the New Testament does not consistently repeat the miraculous birth story, every one of the four Gospels... And continuing through the letters of Paul and others shine a spotlight that he was very, on his very real humanity. Jesus had to learn. Jesus walked. He ate. He drank. He thought. He prayed. He hurt. He sweated. He wept. He raged. All this, I think, is somewhat what Paul has in mind in Romans 1 when he says that Jesus, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. Jesus, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the church at Rome, a city he had never visited, and so to these believers, some of whom he knew personally and referred to by name in chapter 16, most of them had never heard him speak, never heard him, uh, never read his writings, and so the opening verses of of Romans are what you would do in a context like that. Paul is laying out the essence of his gospel, and watch what he does in Romans 1, 1 through 7. He starts by identifying himself as a slave. If your version says servant, that's too mild. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. I'm called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. In verse 7, he says he's writing to all the church in Rome who are loved by God and called to be God's holy people. In other words, his letter isn't to everyone. It's to those in Rome who are part of the church. And in between those two verses where he identifies himself and his readers, he gives us a summary of the gospel that it will take him 16 more chapters to unpack. He mentions all three persons of the Trinity. It would take uh, the church uh, several centuries to formalize that language and use that word, but he talks about God or Father or a pronoun for God about 10 times in these verses. The Holy Spirit is mentioned once, but the word holy comes up three more times. Jesus and Christ appear four times, always paired together, Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, 
Lord is in these verses twice, son twice, referring to Jesus, and pronouns for Jesus three more times. So Jesus and death and resurrection are the focus of verse 4, as well as his grace through faith in verse 5. And so both for Paul and his readers, Jew and Gentile, they're all called by God and Jesus Christ into a life of obedience and service for his namesake. Whose name? Verse 5, Jesus. He is central to Paul's gospel. This is what he's introducing to us. So what I'm saying is that almost all essential Christian doctrine is included in this text that Kevin read for us a few moments ago. But right in the middle of that, because it's just as important, is not just who Jesus is in relationship to his Father, but who Jesus is in relationship to you. He says that Jesus, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David. Jesus, the Lord of all, Yahweh himself became so thoroughly human that if, he, if they'd have had DNA tests in those days, you could have, draw, you could have taken a, bit, a little bit of his spit and traced it right back to David, the very father of this dynasty that had been established a thousand years earlier. So this phrase as to his earthly life, is remarkable in Greek because it's, it's uh, literally according to the flesh. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus, according to flesh, was a descendant of David. Most often when Paul uses the word flesh, it's negative, meaning our sinful nature. But here, uh, he doesn't use it that way. It doesn't have to be that way. It's just a reference to the human body. Jesus had a human body, that was just the same as yours and mine is physically. He had 26 chromosomes that mapped out in advance of his life his hair color, his height, what color his eyes were, when he would cut his first tooth, how fast he would be able to run, and whether he would prefer pretzels or ice cream. I'm going with ice cream. Jesus' humanity is just as important to the gospel as his deity. If Jesus does not participate in our flesh, there is no gospel to tell. Early in the church's history, the boundaries of Christian orthodox were established based on passages like this one all over the New Testament. And this is not a minor theme. This is a major chord of truth. Jesus is just as much God as the Father is and just as much human as you and I are, yet he is one individual, in, indivisible person with two separate natures. So why does that matter? So you've had the history lesson now, you've had the theology lesson, okay, I'm going to get to the, okay, what does this mean to me? And believe me, it means a lot. So there are several places in the New Testament where uh, this truth is unpacked. What does it mean to us that Jesus is fully human? And I'm going to uh, break one of my general rules of Bible study and preaching, which is I like to stick to one text. But today, I need to go to a few other texts that uh, explain this in a little bit more detail what this means to us. And I've got three words. And for those of you who are, who are sort of lifetime churchgoers, I'm not going to tell you anything that's new today. But I hope it will resonate in a more personal and powerful, even emotional way today as you, as you ponder these three words, what it means that Jesus shares our humanity. So the three words, so you don't miss them, are mediation, intercession, and empathy. Mediation, intercession, and empathy. So let me begin, begin with uh, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God... 
and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Now, I wrestled with this idea of mediation this week because honestly, those of you particularly who are professionals know that in our world, mediation has a somewhat different connotation than it did perhaps in the time of Paul. Because for most of us, mediation is kind of a negative. Mediation is when you have two people who can't agree and at the end of it, neither one of them is happy. Right? There's no, there's a lose-lose proposition. It's a compromise almost always when you have mediation. That's not how Paul is using the word, nor is it the heart of the word in English and Greek. The heart of the word is there are two parties who are at odds, variance, but the goal is a win-win. So this is how Paul is using the word. Yes, it's true. We humans are by nature and by what we do enemies of God, powerless, ungodly sinners. That's what Paul says in Romans 5. There is a yawning Grand Canyon between God and us. Separation. And there's the God side that is marked by goodness and eternity and beauty. And on our side, there is rebellion and self-absorption that is worthy of death. And the only way to bridge that gap is for one side to cross to the other. But we humans have no way to get to God. We are created in God's image, but none of us can become God. So God got to us. God became one of us. Paul says in Philippians 2, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So Jesus became human so that he could bear the full consequences of our sin. Someone asked me the other day, why did Jesus have to die? Why was a sacrifice necessary? And the answer is that if, if sin has no consequences, then no sin truly matters. Hatred doesn't matter. Racism doesn't matter. Pride doesn't matter. Child abuse doesn't matter. Greed doesn't matter. Lust doesn't matter. But if sin matters, there must be a payment for sin. And the Bible says sin leads to death. And we all agree that the more heinous the crime, the greater the punishment is deserved. So if you've been watching or the news or reading your Hickory Daily Record this week, nobody wants someone who has molested a child to go free. And I have no inner knowledge of that to know who's guilty and who's innocent. But we all say, if it's true, we don't want that person to go free. There must be a penalty for that. When the Christian message gets thoroughly embedded in our souls, we say, of the worst sins, there but for the grace of God go I. The other sinner may have done something worse than I have done, but the gap between me and God is just as wide and just as uncrossable as it is for them. So none of us can get to God without a mediator He had to get to us, and he did. So God can only pay the debt of our sin if he shares fully in our human nature. Otherwise, he's not a sacrifice on our behalf. He has to become one of us. Someone like us had to suffer on our behalf. He couldn't send an angel. He had to send a human being. He had to become one of us. But then he had to be perfect, because if he wasn't perfect, then he couldn't bear the sins of those who are sinners because he would have had to pay for his own sin. And moreover, even one perfect human being, like I couldn't die for the sins of the world, even if theoretically I could be perfect, I could only die for one other person. But if God comes into our world and becomes a human being, then because he's both God and man, he can bear the sins of the whole world. My friends, 
it is so good that Jesus is not a mediator in the sense of a negotiator. He is a mediator in the sense of a peacemaker. The two sides are no longer at variance. And this is not a lose-lose mediation. This is a win-win. God's heart has always been to love the world and that every person would have the opportunity to have their sins forgiven and have an eternal relationship with him. God is not willing, the scripture says, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wins because sins are paid for, but we humans, we win because our sins are banished as far as the east is from the west. This is the best possible news, and Jesus made it happen because he became fully human. Second word, intercession. Hebrews chapter 7. Because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them, to pray for them. Another game changer. One of us is in heaven right now serving as our advocate, our defense attorney, our liaison. We don't know exactly how all this works. We don't have to. Romans says that the Holy Spirit is the one who takes our prayers and turns them into prayers that uh, are in line with the Father's will. It doesn't really matter to us how exactly it works. What matters is that it's true, because as my brother said on Facebook this week about the 65th birthday t-shirt I sent him, this is huge! It's related to one aspect of Christian doctrine that I bet you haven't thought about very often. Christians don't believe that Jesus was human. We believe that he is human. The incarnation was per permanent. Think about the grace that the one who had existed with the Father forever and the Holy Spirit in heaven took on human flesh, not just for a moment, not just so he could die on the cross, not just for 33 years. Jesus was born a human. He lived his life in a mortal body with all that that means, and then he died and suffered, and then he was raised in a glorified human body that is just like the one that we will have when we go to see him. What grace that he would live eternally as one of us, according to flesh. We don't have an intercessor in heaven who says, you know what, when I was down there, I kind of remember what that was like. We have someone who is in heaven who says, I know what it's like to be a human being. And he's the one interceding before the Father on our behalf. Which is directly related to and leads me to my final point, which is empathy. Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. What time of need do you have? So I return to the question that I framed at the beginning of the sermon. Did Jesus wet the bed? It is a perfectly understandable question for a sixth grader to ask, but let's consider it now as a grown-up. It's not the point that Jesus dealt with every specific situation that we deal with. The most obvious ones are Jesus never got married, so he never had to deal with spousal conflict or disagreement. Jesus was never a parent. He didn't have to deal with teenagers. Jesus never grew old. 
He didn't have the aches and pains that I am having increasingly every day. Jesus never had to fight the urge to surf the internet for pornography. He never lusted after a Ferrari. He never lost his cool because his team lost to that cotton-picking underdog during March Madness. Jesus didn't have to go through everything that we face. In Hebrews 4.15, when it says that he was tempted in every way just as we are, a better translation is actually the word tested, which actually includes temptation, but it's so much broader. Jesus is able, the writer of Hebrews says, to empathize with our weaknesses. Jesus knows what it's like from firsthand experience to be dependent. He knows what it's like to be needy. He knows what it's like to have his body scream to fulfill its desires outside the will of God. He can identify with hunger and thirst and drop-dead exhaustion. Jesus understands sexual desire. He lived as a young man. Jesus knows what it's like to have enemies. He knows what it's like to have the devil on your back in ways that you and I will never understand or grasp. Jesus understands waiting on God when nothing is happening. He understands asking God for something and God says no. Jesus was misunderstood, mocked, shamed, rejected, unjustly accused, betrayed, and denied by one of his best friends. Jesus experienced the worst kind of physical torture invented by man when he was flogged and then crucified. He knows what it's like to feel life draining from his body and breathe his last. And he knows what it's like to give up his life when he knew the agony that it would cause his mother who was sitting there watching it happen. Jesus knows grief and he knows pain and he knows what it means to be one of us. He lived according to flesh. He says, I understand how flesh works, how it pulls and tugs and grips. And I know how the devil lies about what's real and true. And yet the writer of Hebrews adds, yet he did not sin. And you say, well, then he goes like, well, he's just looking at me going like, what's wrong with you, you messed up human being? Why did you do that again? Pray for me, pray to me for forgiveness again. No, I'm done with you. Tired of you asking for forgiveness for the same kind of sins over and over again. No, that's not how Jesus sees us. He says, I fully understand the grip that you're in. And there, but for the grace of God, go I. I get it. And when you come to me and you need mercy because you've done it again, I am your number one advocate. I will give you mercy because that's what I do. I love you how you are and where you are and all of your sins are under my blood you are forgiven. I see you as perfect. Come back again for mercy in your time of need. And when we say, Lord, I'm in the middle of it right now and I'm feeling tugged and pulled because this is a test I can't handle. I can't get through it. Lord, this is a temptation I can't say no to. He says, come to me for grace. Right in the middle of that. I understand that. I know you, but I know humans. I know flesh. I understand it. I'm with you. Come to me in your time of need. And I will show you by my life and by my words what it means 
to live a holy life, but I will also understand you in the middle of your struggle. Pastor Paul said this week, he became like one of us so that we might become like him. So we have before him, before us, our pattern, our model, but also the one who is our pattern is the one who comes right alongside of us and says, I will help you, trust me, love me, lean on me, let me help you through the middle of this test. I know what it's like to be you. Thank God he was and is one of us. Let us pray. And perhaps you would just lay before the Lord today whatever area in which you have been thinking, wondering if it's even okay to say out loud, God, I'm not sure you understand what I'm dealing with right now. He also loves honesty. He was honest before his father. Lay that before him. And where you need grace in this moment to help you in your time of need, you have the best possible friend who knows you inside out and who knows what it's like to be you. And where you need mercy because this week, this, this day, maybe this moment, you have fallen short, put your life and hands in Jesus. He died for you. He rose again. You can find mercy. God, thank you that you could have just said, I'm going to create the world and create man in his own image so he can have the possibility of being like me. And you did. You could have just said, I'm going to create covenants and allow them to be called by my name and be my people. And you did. You could have just said, I'm going to give them the law and let them know what's right and wrong in great detail, and you did. And you could have just sent poets and prophets who wrestled through what it means and rebuked your people, and you did. But you didn't stop there. You came to us. You bridged this awful gap And now you live in the presence of your Father as one of us. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We love you. We trust you. We lean on you. And we pray as you taught us, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.